Acts 13, 2 through 5. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. And Acts 13, 13 says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Acts 15, 36 through 39. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for uh, Paul and John Mark and Barnabas and, and all of those men who did the groundwork of building your church so long ago. Lord, I thank you for your servant Neil this morning as he comes to bring us uh, your truth. I pray, Lord, that you will silence his own voice but amplify yours. And Lord, for those of us here, I, I pray that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of it. I pray that we'll leave here transformed. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, there is a painting hanging on a wall in the National Gallery of Art in Toronto, Ontario. The painting is by Pablo Picasso, and we believe that it was created in 1902. The painting is called La Miserouse Acrupi. At six years of French, I never was very competent, so probably there's someone here who could teach me to say that the way Michel Dion would say it. But la miserus acrupi means in English, the crouching beggar. And as you look at that painting, it speaks to you not only through the eye, but it speaks to your heart. The painting is in very dark, dismal blue colors. In the midst of all that dark surround, there is in the middle of it an older lady and she's wrapped in a dark bluish green blanket. She's on all fours. Her head is bent, and the expression on her face is one of a lady who is desolate, who is despairing, who is discouraged, and who's resigned to a life that's empty. Now, art historians will tell us that from 1901 to 1904, Picasso was in what's called his blue period. Picasso had a favorite art student. His name was Carlos, and Carlos was from Catalan. Catalan is a part of Spain that's around Barcelona. And Picasso was very fond of Carlos. He liked his development. He liked his style. He thought there was a great future for him. Carlos fell in love, deeply in love, head over heels, and he pursued this young lady all the way to Paris, and he was hot and heavy, but she could not return his love. He was requited, as the old-fashioned folks would say. He was rejected. And he became thoroughly disconsolate, downcast, discouraged. He reached a point where he felt like, if I can't have her love and her presence with me, then life is not worth living. 
And so he committed suicide. That suicide struck a huge, bitter note in Picasso's heart. And it began what the historians call a four-year blue period, where almost everything that Picasso did was in deep, dark, dismal, depressing blue colors. Reflections of how his heart felt. He felt guilty that perhaps there was something he could have said, should have said, but did not. Perhaps there was something he could have done, should have done, but failed to do. And he felt guilty that he was a part of that awful act. And so he draws, he paints, La Miserouse. That painting is probably the climax of the agony that Picasso felt. That painting captures the depth of his own personal defeat and depression. For decades, for nine decades, we have felt that was the meaning of that painting. That was the purpose of that painting. That's what it communicates. But in the 1990s, some observers noticed that there were some strange brush marks and strokes around that painting of the lady. And they observed that here and there around the surround, there were specks of pigmentations of something other than blue. But they never could find out, figure out what the deal was. It remained a mystery. Was there more? Until the last two years, and art technicians have begun to apply a technique called X-radiography. X-rays that don't damage the painting, they're non-intrusive, but they enable the observer to see the painting in almost 3D. And when that happened, something amazing happened. That background, that backdrop, that dark, dismal, depressing blue actually turned out to be a landscape. Some think that that was how Picasso first painted this particular painting. It was a dark, dismal landscape. It was to reflect the landscape of his heart. But as that 3D observation continued, they realized it wasn't just haphazard. It wasn't any landscape. The Spanish artist said, you know what? That landscape is the landscape of a Catalonian park in Barcelona. It's a park where Catalonian artists would go and they would practice their trade. It was a park well known to Picasso. He probably sent Carlos there to practice. And when he came to paint this reflection of his deep grief for his loss, he chose the landscape of a park that was special to him and special to Carlos. I don't think that Picasso came to that landscape painting as a second act. I don't think that it was reflection that led him to return to that piece of art and superimpose upon it the figure of the lady, the crouching beggar. You see, when they look at that crouching lady, when they look at her more carefully, and they look at the outline of her head and her back all the way down to her toes, they realize that Picasso cleverly used the shades, the tones, the whos of those little slopes of the landscape to draw a perfect outline of the woman. Not a second touch, 
a first touch, part of the original. And there's more. If you would take a, a piece of tracing paper and lay it over that painting and take your lead pencil and draw in at the outline of that crouching beggar lady and pick it up and look at a map of Spain and look at a map of the outlines of Catalan, they are identical. Picasso, first time out, painted this painting not merely to reflect his grief and his loss, but also in memorial, in tribute, in honor to his dear art student, Carlos. But for 116 years, we saw only the simple painting. Until modern technology helped us to see, there was more. Picasso was not a simplex, even as a young artist, during those four years. Picasso was always a complex man. There were always layers of thoughts and feelings and emotions. And that technology is beginning to reveal what for decades lay hidden. Now, there are scriptures like that, scriptures that we've read again and again, scriptures that you've heard, that you've heard them taught and preached, and you thought, yeah, that, that's good. That's, that's exactly what the Lord means. That's exactly what the Lord wants. I think of the prodigal son. We've always looked at the foolishness of the son and the forgiveness of the father, and that's true. But there's so much more. A missionary spent 40 years in the Middle East, and at the end of his time, he began to write of the customs, the traditions of the Middle East. And as he wrote, he shared with them how he discovered how so much more is there in that parable, how beautiful, how powerful, how colorful. So my hope this morning my goal this morning is that the Lord would enable me to take some of the threads of Acts and weave them, and would weave for you a picture with perhaps some different hues and tones and depths that you haven't seen before. I am assuming that as we walk through that together, some of you are going to have blue moments. I am assuming that as we do that, the Spirit of God may touch your heart, and there may be feelings of regret, feelings of remorse. There may be words that were spoken that you'll remember that you should not have spoken. Or maybe there were words that were left unsaid that should have been said. Maybe there are works that were done, things that were done that you realize you should never have done those things. And you're going to feel blue. You're going to feel the pain. My hope and my prayer is if and when that happens this morning or this afternoon or this week, that the Spirit of God will touch your heart and lead you to rivers of His grace, to make those memories be washed in the love of His Son. We're looking this morning at a man called Mark, sometimes called John Mark. Mark actually is the surname, Marcus in Latin. That would have been his surname, his second name. John was his first name. John Mark. What do we know about John Mark? Well, first of all, we know that John Mark is a man like you. 
Perhaps in our modern culture, I better change that and say, John Mark is a person like you. He knew God's Word like you. The early church is growing, is multiplying, but there is opposition. At first, it's verbal. Then it's political. Then it takes a nasty turn and becomes physical. And there is, there's fogging, there's beating. And then it takes a really violent turn, and Stephen is put to death. He's martyred. He's the first known martyr in the New Testament era. And then they take James, the brother of John the Apostle, and he is martyred. And then they grab hold of Peter, and they throw him in prison. And probably the intention is to bring him out before the Hebrew people and say, what do you want me to do with him? And they would shout out what they shouted at Pilate. Crucify him. Crucify him. But the church, deeply concerned for Peter, his life, his welfare, the church has come together, and the church is praying for Peter. They're praying for God to do something amazing to intervene. And so the Lord God sends an angel of the Lord. Now, if you read Acts, you see that there's four guards appointed to guard Peter. I mean, four guards. How many, how many men do you need to guard just one dude? Four guards. And then in the, in the prison cell, they have him sleeping between two guards. He's shackled and chained. The angel is sent to the prison, and the angel just walks through the prison cell, the walls, the cells. The light shines. The angel finds Peter. The angel slaps him on the side, says, Peter, stand up. The chains, the shackles fall off. Get dressed, Peter. Now, Peter thinks he's having a dream. But the angel leads him all the way through, through the prison doors, outside the prison doors, onto a street, and then the angel leaves him. Peter realizes, this is not a vision. This is not a dream. Oh, my. I've been released. I've been set free. What should I do? Well, the church is praying for me. They're praying for my release. Glory. I should go tell them what has happened. And where does Peter go? Luke, the author of Acts, says, Peter goes to the house of Mary. Must be a significant-sized house because the church is meeting there apparently on a regular basis. Apparently, this is the headquarters of the church in the city of Jerusalem. But Luke gives us those little details that the others don't give us. The physician, the MD, notices the details. He says, this is the house of Mary, the mother of Mark, who is also called John. This is the house of Mary, the mother of Mark, the headquarters of the church in, Rome, in Jerusalem, the place that is the beehive of spiritual activity in Jerusalem. That's the home of Mark. Sunday by Sunday, he heard the Word of God preached. Sunday morning, he gets up out of his bed, he goes downstairs, and his bedroom becomes the place where the children are gathered for children's worship. He goes down to the dining room for breakfast, and later that day, that dining room will be the fellowship hall for the believers to break bread together after worship. And in the next room is the sanctuary room where they gather for worship and praise and adoration. And when a prophet comes to visit, to bring a word of the Lord. The prophet comes and he's accommodated in that large, significant home of Mary. And Mark hears it. 
the testimonies of what has happened in the conversion of sinners. Mark hears it. We never hear of Mark's father. He's never mentioned, we're never given information. We don't know if Mark's father died of natural causes. We don't know if he was persecuted and martyred like Stephen and James. We know that Mary is a widow. And what we see is a devout lady who loves the Lord and uses her resources for the growth and kingdom and advancement of the kingdom of God. And in that surrounding, in that environment, her son, John Mark, like you and me, heard God's word. And John Mark, like you and me, saw God's power. When the church in Jerusalem hears that something's going on north on Antioch, they hear there's spiritual activity, they hear there's conversions, they hear the Spirit of God is working. They say, you know, we better find out. We better see what's going on. And so they say, Barnabas, you're one of the chief honchos. You're a spiritual man. You're a wise man. You're a mature. Barnabas, we appoint you to go up north to Antioch and observe and analyze what's going on. And so Barnabas goes, but not alone. He takes an assistant. Who's the assistant? John Mark. How cool is that? This young guy, this son of Mary, is taken by Barnabas, the mature spiritual leader, and he's taken him for days north to Antioch, and for days John Mark is in the presence and the fellowship of Barnabas. He sees Barnabas interacting with the new leaders. He hears the testimonies in Antioch of the conversions. How beautifully and deeply is the pen of the Spirit of God writing on John Mark's heart. And then Barnabas is involved in the discipleship, the training of Saul. And Barnabas brings Saul to Antioch and says, you've got to see what's going on here. This is, this is beautiful. This is powerful. This is incredible. And he brings Saul, it's intriguing, for several chapters, Luke uses the name of Saul, and not until we get to about chapter 15 does Saul be renamed Paul. I think signifying that Saul is in a discipleship period, an instruction period. And Barnabas is the lead, and he brings Saul to Antioch. And Antioch says, you two men, the Spirit of God says, are to go. You're to go out. You're to teach and preach. You're to evangelize. You're to proclaim the Word of the Lord and His grace. And so they lay hands on them and pray, anoint, appoint. And so they go off in what we refer as the first missionary journey. But they don't go alone. They had an associate missionary. Who? John Mark. John Mark. They took John Mark along with them. Can you imagine what, what he saw? The villages where they went door to door, evangelizing, sharing, teaching, the conversions, the town squares where they gathered and People would come to sell their wares, and in the middle of it all, they'd stick up their soapbox and they'd start proclaiming the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And Barnabas is seeing it all. The synagogues where they would go and they would say, man, woman, this Older Testament, it's God's story of His love. It's the revelation of His beloved Son, Jesus, and Him who you do not know, we have come to proclaim. And Barnabas saw it all. And maybe they even said, Barnabas, 
Take Isaiah 53 and teach us about it. Barnabas saw conversions. Barnabas saw the, the power of God on fail from heaven. Amazing. It would have been like going with Billy Graham on six months of crusades. Awesome preaching. Hearts touched and lives changed. Or it would be like going with my friend Walter Thompson, who's the, the Billy Graham of the Caribbean, and going from island to island, church to church. Amazing, powerful preaching. Folks touched by the Spirit of God. How amazing. Mark saw the power of God, like you and me. You have seen the power of God. Four years ago, New City Church was a gleam in the heart of Pastor Ryan and Megan. Just a gleam, four years ago. Look at us. Look at us. The gleam has become a plant and now a church. The gleam has become a group of 250 folks gathering together to love, to serve, to adore, to worship. We just heard David three weeks ago out of an entirely non-Christian background. Raised in Buddhism. We heard his testimony of how he was found by Jesus and called. I'm sitting over here that morning and, and I'm, I'm watching Brandon. And Brandon's standing here and he's got this huge gallon pitcher of water. My wife is saying, oh no, oh no, not all of that. Not all of that. And Ryan took that, and he poured it. Our pastor poured all of that water over David's head. It cascaded down upon him. And I thought, how, how dramatic, how beautiful, how powerful. The Spirit of God pouring out on lives, reaching out to folks like David. How beautiful. Mark is like you and me. He knew God's word. He saw God's power. But, but, he disobeyed God's will. Saul and Barnabas are sent out on the first missionary journey. He began to go village to village, town to town. And things are happening. Wonderful things are happening. And Barnabas is teaching Saul and John Mark. And he's giving them little duties along the way of this great mission. They come to Pamphos and they set sail from there to Perga. Get your map out later and look at where they are. They get to Perga. And Barnabas and Saul begin to, to preach and teach. But there's a very brief phrase at the end of a verse. And we're told, John left them and returned to Jerusalem. He left the missionary journey. He left the spiritual adventure. He resigned from his associate missionary position, and he went back home to Jerusalem. Why? What happened there? Maybe he was suffering from Atlanta allergies. Maybe he had intestinal discomfort. Maybe he, he remembered his father and thought, you know, dad, dad was harassed and persecuted. I don't want to go through that. 
Maybe he got a, a scroll from mother, a honeydew. John Mark, I miss you. Come home. Maybe, maybe, maybe. But we know it was none of those. It was none of those. Because when Barnabas and Saul returned to Antioch, and they share with the Antioch church, who was the sending church, they share with them what happened, the great things, the mighty things, the powerful things, the awesome things. Then for a while they stay there. And then the Spirit of God moves on Saul, who's now become Paul. And Paul says to Barnabas, hey Barnabas, let's go a second time. Let's go visit the brothers, the sisters. Let's go see how those small groups, those plants are doing. Let's encourage them. Let's nourish them. Let's build them up. And Barnabas says, all right, you bet you. What great stuff we saw that first time. There is no telling what God will do this second time. And let's take Mark. And Paul blows a fuse. He blows a fuse. My translation is very discreet. It was a severe disagreement. The Greek was a lot heavier than that. The doctor's using language that suggests deep cutting surgery. Paul says, Barnabas, you've got to be kidding. You don't, you're, you're not really asking me to take John Mark. I mean, come on. The deserter? The denier? The guy that turned tail and ran? We're in the, we're in the heat of spiritual battle? Spiritual conflict? We need, we need the foot soldiers to be there to support us, to encourage us. And we turn around, and they're gone. Come on, Barnabas. You don't really mean it. That's not what we should do. And the knife cuts. And then that severe disagreement, Paul goes off pursuing his high, great mission. And the Scripture says very, very briefly, Barnabas took John Mark and went to Cyprus. He was a deserter. What happened? Did the road get rough and tough? Did he, did he say, you know, these Gentiles are beginning to come? I'm not ready for that. I mean, the Jews coming, my people coming. I'm up for that. But, but the Gentiles? Come on. They don't look like me. They don't talk like me. They don't walk like me. They don't smell like me. I'm not ready to make that adjustment. I'm not ready to reach out to folks unlike me. I just can't take it. And he deserted. He turned tail and he went home. He's a man like you and me. We know God's Word. We have seen God's power. But we have disobeyed. Now, in God's mercy, that's not the end of the story. That's not all she wrote. We're not left with a feeling of, it's the best we can do, we're going to fail. Even if we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, it's not going to be enough. And so God takes us to another layer of the painting, and God shows us that not only is a Mark a man like us, but Mark becomes a model of God's grace for you and for me. Now let me go to meddling.
when another Christian falls, falters, disobey, how do you respond? When someone in the church who's made a testimony of their commitment to Jesus, who's grateful for forgiveness, when they falter, when they fall, when they fail, how do you respond? When someone who's close to you, a friend, in the church, a believer, they fall, they falter, they sin, they disappoint Jesus, and they disappoint you, how do you respond? It has frequently been said that Christians are the only folks who shoot their own wounded. In His mercy, in His love for you, God does not treat you with a shotgun. He may discipline you. He may speak to you sternly, but he does not shoot his wounded. God sends to John Mark a minister of grace. Paul goes off on his mission, the second missionary journey. Very, very abruptly, very shortly, the scripture just says Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. Barnabas took Mark out of the heat of the battle. He took him out of the front lines. He took him out of the pressure cooker. He took him to an island and began to listen to John Mark's struggles and fears and doubts. He began to listen to his pain. And he began to apply God's Word of God's love and God's grace. To John Mark. He began to lead John Mark to a place of renewing, refreshing grace, to discover that even for those who feel on the front lines, there is grace and mercy. If you read Acts, you'll reach the conclusion that Barnabas, Barnabas was something of a troubleshooter. This is not the first weary soul. This is not the first fallen soldier that Barnabas has ministered to. In Acts 9, there's a man called Saul. He's known as a persecutor of the church. He's known as a murderer of church members. He's known as someone who's out to get the church and squash it. And one day he arrives in front of the church in Jerusalem. He says, hey, guys, I've said the sinner's prayer. I've knelt before Jesus. I've yielded my life to Christ. And the response of the leaders? Fear. Fear. What did they fear? They feared that this man was trying to infiltrate the ranks. They wanted they thought that this man wanted a list of all of the leaders of the church, and he was going to put them to death also, like the other guys. And they wouldn't touch him. They wouldn't engage him in conversation. They would not welcome him into their fellowship. There was an exception. Acts 9, Luke says, but... Barnabas, but Barnabas took Saul. He took Saul. And for the next several years, Barnabas is the discipler, the teacher, the friend, the guide, the director of Saul. He is the one responsible for Saul of Tarsus to grow in God's grace. He took Saul. 
and he brought him to the apostles. This is the man whom God gives to John Mark, an experienced, mature leader, a man who's dealt with failures, opposition, difficult people. This one he gives to minister to Mark. He gives him a minister of grace. But God does more. God gives to John Mark an illustration of his grace. The Apostle Peter writes, and towards the end of his fifth chapter of his first letter, he gives a greeting. It says, those who are in Babylon, chosen with you, send you their greetings. And so does Mark. And so does Mark. Who's Mark? What Mark is that? Is that, is that a son of Peter's flesh? Is that an offspring? Of Peter? Is that a child given to Peter and his wife? We don't think so. We think Mark spent a considerable amount of time in Jerusalem. He came under the, the tutelage of Peter, encouraged, taught, discipled by Peter, so much that the two became so very close that Peter thought of Mark as if he were his own son. He gives Barnabas, he gives John Mark, rather, an example of his grace. And then he gives John Mark to become a minister of his grace. Paul writes to Philemon. He says, Epaphras sends you his greetings, my fellow prisoner. And so does Aristarchus. And Luke and Mark, my fellow workers, my fellow workers. And then he writes to Timothy, we think within probably months of the end of Paul's life, it's his second letter, he's in prison in Rome, he says, Timothy, I need you to come to me because only Luke is here. And I need you to bring me Mark. He is useful to me and to my ministry. Wow. This is the man who blew a fuse over the failure of John Mark. Now I says, Timothy, I want you to go out into the Christian world. You know the Christian world. You know the people that are there, the brothers and the sisters. You've been through the churches. There's one man I want you to find. One man I want you to bring me. One man who's useful to me. One man who understands my, my struggles, my thoughts, my prayers, my needs. One man who understands what I'm, what I'm wrestling with right now. One man who can link arms with me, and together he can help me march to the end of my road. And my goodness, who is that man? Surprise, surprise. John Mark. John Mark. There's only one thing left for God to do in the ministry of His grace to Mark. And one day comes to Mark, he says, Mark, I'm going to choose four men, four men who will write a book, record the life, the ministry, the sufferings, the death, the resurrection of my son. They'll write a book for the encouragement of the church right now. They'll write a book for the instruction of the church in the centuries ahead. They'll write a book for the encouragement, the teaching of the church until Jesus returns. Mark, 
you are one of the four. In fact, Mark, you are the first. You are the first. You will be the first to write, and your record will be the first available to the church. And they will carry it. They will carry it down the Roman vias into all of Europe. And as that word is proclaimed to those pagan tribes of Gaul, amazing things happen. People are changed. Lives are changed. There's conversions to Christ. And the pagans are saying, what happened to him? What happened to him? How can, how can he have that kind of joy? The superstition's gone. What happened? The pagan tribes of Gaul reached a conclusion. There's only one thing that can explain what happened. God cast a spell over that man, over that woman. It has to be God's spell. And in the, in the decades ahead in the Anglo-Saxon world, God's spell would become gospel. The word would be carried to the Chinese, into their darkness, the light would shine. Lives would be changed. Men and women would be committed their lives to Jesus Christ. And the Chinese said, what shall we call this book? This book that does these amazing things. What shall we call this book? We shall call this book Fu Yin Shu. Fu Yin Shu. Translation, the happy sounding book. Because into the cacophony, into the discord, into the darkness, into the pain, into the agony, into the sin, God writes a new composition the symphony of His love and mercy and grace in sinners who once were dead. Now, I need to speak to John Mark this morning. Some of you have said to yourself silently, yep, yep, that's my brother. I am John Mark's brother. I am John Mark's sister. Perhaps you've said, I am John Mark's cousin or his niece or his nephew. And there have been moments of, of blue when God's Spirit has put His finger on things in your life, present or past. Things not yet dealt with. Skeletons in the closet that continue to rattle and hold you back from knowing all that God has for you. Some 25 years ago, I had a John Mark experience, a crisis in my personal life. It took me a while to figure out what was going on in my heart. But ultimately, I realized, you know, I need to pull myself out of the front lines. I need to retreat. I need a Cyprus. And yes, I need a Barnabas. It took a while for me to figure that out. The Irish are kind of slow. But ultimately, I figured it out. Ultimately, I realized what I needed to do for the kingdom and for myself. And so I cried out, this holy habitation. I cried out for help. And he heard and he answered. And he gave me my Cyprus. And he gave me my Barnabas. He restored my soul. He led me beside the still waters. He renewed my love for him and my relationship with him and his with me. 
Now, my friends, John Mark, I want to urge you, do not linger. Do not let that blueness continue to be a shadow. You need to bring it to the foot of the cross. You need to bring it to Jesus and you say, Jesus, I finally am ready to lay it all out. You may need a Barnabas. You may need a Barnabas. You may need to call Pastor Ryan. He's waiting to listen to this long sermon. You need to call him and say, Pastor Ryan, I need to talk to you about John Mark. Or maybe it won't wait. Maybe you need to go to Brandon and say, Brandon, I need to talk to one of our elders. And he'll lead you to a wise, caring elder who will walk through that valley with you. Do not linger. His arms are open wide. John Mark has been dead for 2,000 years. But through his life and experience, God is saying to you this morning, come, come, I will do for you what I did for John Mark. Let's pray. Father, we are so, we're so very good at hiding. We're so very good at, at stuffing. We're so very good at covering. We made your too easily and knowing less than what you have for us. He is indeed a member of our family. But Father, you have sent Jesus to lead us out of that, to release us to renew us. Just like John Mark, we confessed your name some time ago. We've fallen. We've faltered. We've disobeyed. So, Father, come. Touch us this morning. Speak to us this morning. Give us your grace, Father. Draw us closer to you. We pray, Father. In Jesus' name.